All right, well, welcome again, everybody. So glad you're here. Welcome to the Sovereign Grace Church 2022 tour of Pasadena. You definitely have to have some t-shirts made of all the locations we're passing through this summer. We'll be sure and do that. And for $500, you can have your own t-shirt of our tour. Just let us know what size. Oh, it's, 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 it's a good opportunity. It's a good lesson that the Lord is moving us around the city that we've been called to reach, that we've been called to pray for, that we've been called to bear witness to. Uh, this is good for us, for our souls to sort of get out of our comfort zone, do things a little bit differently, be in some different locations, by God's grace, reach some new people by moving around a bit. So a heartfelt thank you to everybody who works so hard to make this happen. I, I know it is a challenge. The Sunday meeting is a weekly rhythm in most of our lives, and you get that down to, to a, a smooth weekly rhythm, and then all of a sudden things change, and it takes a lot of extra work, a lot of tech, extra effort. But thank you, each one of you. I know people were up early this morning loading, carrying, driving, shifting, setting up. All kinds of work uh, went into making this meeting happen. So thank you for all the extra effort that you put into that. Our text this morning, we're going to spend some time in God's Word. We're in Mark chapter 11. We're back to our study through the gospel according to Mark. And we'll be reading a passage in Mark chapter 11 in just a couple minutes. Title of the message is, A Donkey, the Temple, and a Fig Tree. A donkey, the temple, and a fig tree. What do a donkey, the temple, and a fig tree have in common? Well... Each one, in a unique way, points us to the Savior, and that's what we hope to cover this morning as we look at Mark chapter 11. Everything in the Gospel of Mark is designed to point us to Christ. He wrote it so that you and I as readers would know Christ deeply, know Him well, to the point that we would follow Him. That's the aim of this gospel account, and, and truly knowing Jesus, truly knowing who he is, honestly, who is this Jesus is life-changing. To know him is to have your life changed, and the more we know him, the more our lives will be changed, which is why we meet every week, which is why we study the gospel, which is why we study the Bible, which is why we focus on Jesus Christ, because the more we know him, the more the power of the Spirit changes us. Knowing Jesus is to know a king who genuinely cares for us so that we can look to him, put our trust in him, and even worship him even when the world around us feels like it's falling apart. We have a king who is above it all. Knowing Jesus is to know a high priest who we can come to when we're in trouble. He's the one to turn to when we're hurting, when you're lonely, when you're struggling, when you're experiencing guilt, when you feel ashamed. This is the priest that we go to that can handle anything and everything that's wrong with us. He's the one we're called to come to. Knowing Jesus also brings us into a part of his plan for the world. 
shifts us from our own personal, individualized plan for our lives and moves us into his and gives into our lives a true sense of meaning and purpose that's beyond anything we could imagine for ourselves. That's what we hope to get out of this chapter. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. We'll read oh, through verse 26. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables, the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your father also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Father, take the scripture, sow it into our hearts and lives to bear fruit for your glory 
In Jesus' name, amen. We hit chapter 11, and the mode changes in the gospel according to Mark. Up until now, everything was Jesus acting to display his identity. Jesus would do things, you would watch what he would do, and you were meant to understand and know who he is. He healed, he delivered, he spoke to wind and waves, and you would watch these actions with the intent that you would draw a conclusion about who Jesus is. The whole thing would culminate in this pivotal question when he asked his disciples. The most important question anyone could ever ask, who do you say that I am? It all led up to that moment, and he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Are you getting it? Do you recognize who I am? I've been putting it on display all these weeks, all these months. Now, who do you say? Peter answered, you're the Christ. Right answer. Correct answer. Oddly enough, Jesus responds and says, now don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. Right answer. Good answer. Keep it down for now. Now in chapter 11, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and it's time to go public. There's been an odd sense of secrecy about what Jesus has been doing in his identity. He's revealing himself, and yet he's kind of like, keep it on the down. But now things change. Now he approaches the city. Now it's time for Jesus to go public. He is entering his final week of his ministry. It is Passover. It is leading up to his death. When it's time for Jesus to die, he wants the whole world to see and to know. He spent time alone with his disciples. He spent time out in Galilee in different areas, different regions. Now it's coming down to the real reason why he came. And now he's going public. Now he wants everybody to know, everybody to see. And it's a donkey and a temple and a fig tree are going to help us this morning realize who this Jesus actually is. So there's the donkey. This is his entrance into Jerusalem. We know it as the triumphal entry. And everything about this scene points to royalty. All the details given are making this point that Jesus is the king. It's the Passover week. Crowds, thousands of people are walking into the city of Jerusalem. Jesus distinguishes himself by riding on a donkey. We have no record of Jesus ever riding an animal ever before, not that he didn't necessarily, but here, this time, he distinguishes himself, and he's distinguishing himself as a king. It was a carefully laid out plan. Sent two guys into the upcoming village. You're going to find this colt tied up. Now, we read it, certainly could have been just supernatural insight. Jesus knows all things, can seize everything. We don't know for sure. Maybe he planned it. Maybe he knew the guy. Maybe the guy who owned the colt was standing next to him and said, hey, I've got one at my house. We, we don't know that detail. Here's the point that we do know. Jesus planned this out specifically. This needs to happen. It needs to be public. 
I want everybody to know. So it was a well-planned, one commentator called it, a carefully choreographed street theater. Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem, and he wanted everybody to know, see, and recognize. It was a coronation-like event, a king riding in to the city. Both Matthew and John in their accounts explain in more detail, referring to Zechariah 9, verse 9. This is the prophecy about this event where the prophet wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Jesus is making a pronouncement about himself. He is that promised coming king. But he's a unique kind of king. He's a humble king. He is a meek king. Kings going into war would come in on a giant steed, a war horse. That would be the presentation. They're going off to war. But if a king were coming in to make peace, he would more often be riding a donkey. The animals would state, would state the intent of the king approaching the city. A young donkey meant to communicate humility and meekness and that his intentions were good. He comes bearing peace. Jonathan Edwards, uh, American Puritan pastor, he wrote a sermon called The Admirable Conjunction of Diverse Excellencies in Christ Jesus. We know the book as The Excellencies of Christ. In it, the whole point of the sermon was to look at Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, where Jesus is simultaneously the lion and the lamb. Now, as a Updated book, and a man by the name of Jason Dollar wrote the introduction to this, and here he explains the intent of Edwards. His main ambition in the sermon was to press his hearers to deeply ponder the fact that Jesus Christ is both lion and lamb, both powerful and humble, both strong and weak. These are the diverse excellencies he referred to in the title. He believed that if a person truly considers these diverse qualities of Christ, it should move that person to trust Jesus as Savior and friend. Furthermore, it should move the person to admire and worship Christ appropriately. Here's the point. Jesus combines two magnificent characteristics, two that are not found usually in the same person, but in Christ they're both Combine both strength, weakness, majesty, meekness. You don't find those qualities together in the same person, but in Christ they come together. And this is the kind of king. These two excellent qualities meet in Christ. Some of you have met famous, important people. So you are famous, important people, maybe. You've met somebody who is high in society or high in standing, popular, famous, something like this. And if you were to meet them and you found them to be friendly and engaging with you, you would say they are down to earth. 
I wasn't expecting them to be like that. They're up here in the world, and yet when I met them personally, they were down to earth. They were friendly. They were cordial. They, were, they took an interest in me. I was surprised. And that is the kind of king that we're looking at, both high yet condescending to us. The character trait we call meekness, please know meekness is not weakness like uh, temerity like we think of. Meekness is rather someone with strength, with power, but has the self-control and the ability to control that. An ancient definition of meekness is, is the soldier who knows when to keep his sword in its sheath. He's not rash and draws his sword out too quickly. He knows he has the strength. He has the power. He certainly could overtake the situation, but he recognizes he has the discernment. He has the meekness to keep that under control in order to come in peace. Edward's point is that those two qualities in one should cause us to elevate to a level of admiration even, we would say, to a point of worship, which is precisely what took place when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. Coats on the donkey, coats on the pathway, branches on the pathway, branches being waved, and a crowd calling out, Hosanna, meaning save us or Savior. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, this is the point. Jesus is a king worth worshiping. Jesus is a king who came to us, but he came to us in meekness. He condescended to come to us, to approach us. He comes in peace, to bring peace. Because this is the king who's able to make all things right. I don't know if you personally experience this. I know many people do the, the inclination to put hope and trust in a political leader. Have you ever found yourself like, I really like that leader. I think they've got it right. I think they're going to solve problems for us. I think if that person gets in the right position, do you find your, your sense of hope like beginning to simmer, beginning to boil, like that your expectation, like if only... If only he, if only she, if only that person were in the right position. Well, if you've done that, you've probably done it enough to know you've been disappointed as well. Jesus comes into the city. I'm that king. I'm that king. I'm the king you can trust. I'm the king who can make all things right. I'm the one you can look to. I know what I'm doing. I have the power to make it right. And I have the love and the tenderness and the care to make things right with you and for you. Second point, we move to the temple. Once he gets into Jerusalem, Mark tells us that Jesus goes to the temple. What do we know about the temple? Let's just build a little bit of a case here. The temple is the place where God's presence is accessible to people. The original tabernacle in the wilderness was a mobile tent, much like our church. When God says, pack up, go here, 
go there. The Spirit of the Lord was moving towards the senior center. Then the Spirit of the Lord was moving towards the Hilton. And we just followed that Shekinah glory. And here we are. Amen. Amen. At the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, God and man lived together. It was good. They talked, they walked, they interacted. There was a true communion between humanity and deity. They were together. Sin interrupted it, destroyed it, and the man and the woman were cast outside of the garden. There was a separation. Their rebellion, their resistance to God's word, their unwillingness to obey God's word, to take him at his word, to trust him, caused a separation. Then when the Lord is leading the Israelites, God tells Moses, I want you to build a tent because that's the beginning of my plan to bring God and man back together. So in that tent, that's the place where God says, I will be there and you can come there. And that's where you and I will meet. That tent later turns into a temple, Solomon's temple, an elaborate brick-and-mortar building. Over the centuries throughout the Old Testament, that building suffered all kinds of defilements and destructions and forsakings and rebuilding and on and on until we get to Mark chapter 11, and now we're looking at Herod's temple, which was not entirely finished at the time that this was written but close, and it was fully operational. It was a functioning temple. Herod the Great ruled over Jerusalem, and he offered to rebuild the temple at a grand scale. And Jesus, go, Jesus goes to this temple, and he's looking at this. This was a massive temple. He's looking at this court of the Gentiles. Imagine this. It's about 35 acres 500 yards, that's par five, by 300 some yards. I mean, it was, it was a massive place. And Jesus is looking at this place. Herod offered to rebuild this temple at a grand scale in order to win the favor of the Jews. So here's the contrast we have. God designs a temple where God's people could find peace with God. Herod builds a temple so that God's people could make peace with Rome. You see the contrast. Both were designed to make peace, one with God, one with Rome. And Jesus goes and he looks, he says he looks. Many would say, what a, what, a, what a bizarre, anticlimactic moment. There's big fanfare coming into the city, all the coronation procession going on, and it says he goes to the temple and he looks around and then he goes home. Jesus looks at this temple. He knows, we know, the reality of that temple is always just a shadow of himself. He's that new temple. He's looking at it all, surveying it all. They said it was late. This is not the time to make a public statement. Most of the people were gone late in the day, vendors packing up their tables, 
closing up for the day. Now's not the time because Jesus is going public. What Jesus is going to do, he wants as many people to see and know as possible. He's not just trying to accomplish something in secret. The whole point of what he's about to do is to make sure as many people as possible see what is going on. Next event, fig tree. The crazy fig tree. The last miracle that Mark records for us is Jesus cursing this poor, innocent tree. It's like Jesus got hangry. He's hungry. He's irritable. He's looking for something to eat. He goes to the tree, rummages through the leaves, can't find any fruit, is quite peeved and ticked off, and curses the tree. No one's ever going to eat from you again. Oh, the atheists have fun with this one. Bertrand Russell writes about in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, which I read, by the way, and it made me want to become a Christian so bad. I mean, I was ready to fall on my knees all over again when I read that book. But in it, this is one of the things. He points out, what did he call it? The vindictive fury of Jesus on this poor tree. Tree didn't do anything wrong. And Mark makes a point to tell us it wasn't time for figs to be on the tree. So the tree didn't do anything wrong. Completely innocent, just being a good tree, like trees are supposed to be, and Jesus comes along and curses it. Here is the reality of what's going on. The Bible often uses trees to symbolize either the health or the ill health of God's people. Psalm 1 what is the man who delights in the law of the Lord? Well, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. Leaves all the time, bearing fruit in season. Like, that's a healthy tree. And the comparison is with the one who meditates on God's word, who puts his hope and his trust in. Jeremiah in chapter 17 speaks about the people who refuse to put their trust in God. They're like a desert shrub who will not see any good come. The cursing of the fig tree is not a lesson about how Christians should treat nature. It's not a lesson about trees. It's not a lesson about figs. It's an object lesson about the unfruitfulness of the temple. The emphasis in the account is on the leaves but no fruit. The temple too, all leaves, no fruit. All appearance, no real communion with God. Looks good from a distance. Looks like God is being honored. Lots of activity in the temple. Magnificent building. We'll see other accounts. Jesus, look. Look at this building. Isn't it magnificent? Look what Herod did for us. Isn't this marvelous? Isn't this pleasing to God? All leaves, no fruit. James Edwards in his commentary says, The leafy tree, with all its promise of fruit, is as deceptive as the temple, which, despite its religious commerce and activity, is really an outlaw's hideout. The curse of the fig tree is a symbol 
of God's judgment of the temple. Jesus comes back to the temple the next morning. And he comes into this enormous temple, this 35 acres of flea market marketplace, vendors, thousands of animals. Just to give you a little bit of a, a sense of the scale here, Josephus wrote that when they finished the temple, this would be 66 A.D., he estimated that they slaughtered over a quarter of a million lambs and sheep and goats on that day, on Passover. It was massive. And Jesus comes in, and he makes a scene. Starts pushing over tables, kicking over some chairs, telling people to stop carrying merchandise from here to there. I mean, he really makes a scene. It was a stage scene. He wanted the right people to know. Now, it's unlikely that if you can imagine 35 acres of business going on like this, that he shut the whole thing down. But he made enough of a scene for the right people to know. This was him getting things ready for his death. In fact, his approach to the temple, his views of the temple, the things that they thought he said about the temple came up in his trial at his death. This was significant. He was laying the groundwork. He was setting the stage. He was making a point, and it was known. And he explains the problem as he does this. This place was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. The nations, the Gentiles. All this is taking place in the court of the Gentiles. This is the one place of the temple where anyone was allowed to enter into. You could be a non-Jew and you were allowed to come into this massive court. And Jesus is saying this whole place was designed to display my heart to reach all nations, to bring all nations into peace with God. And well, that was supposed to be what this place is for, and yet all we have is a marketplace, a den of robbers. The den of robbers is probably less about any specific shady business going on in the money changers and the commerce that was going on there. It wasn't like he was trying to point out, oh, you shorted him some change or something like that. It really was probably a much broader view. We could look at Jeremiah chapter 7 and, and realize it's, it was much more about all the injustices in society, all the other offenses against the Lord himself. And in reality, what he sees happening is you're actually robbing the Gentiles. You're robbing the nations of the grace of God. You're hindering the nations from coming to this place. You should be in this place praying for those nations. Because, friends, this was the plan of God from the very beginning. He initiated a plan that, was, that is going to result in a people from every people coming in to know peace with God through Jesus Christ. From here, Jesus talks about prayer. It's really the only time that Mark expounds a little bit, seems to gather up some sayings that Jesus talked about prayer. He's just like shifting the 
instruction and the teaching here to talk about prayer. Because Jesus knows this temple is going to be destroyed. He predicted it. He told them it was going to happen. You're going to see this thing crumble down. And Jesus knowing that he himself is the replacement for this massive building. He himself is going to be the place where God and man meet. He himself is going to be the person where peace with God is made. We hear this and know this as the cleansing of the temple. It's a little bit of a misnomer. He was doing away with it. He was shutting this one down. This was going to be a thing of the past soon, and he wanted to redirect everybody's understanding to himself. The new community of God's people are to be a people of prayer. And so we get this, feels like a little bit of an odd fit, little paragraph about prayer. And Jesus emphasizes two things about prayer. Faith and forgiveness. Faith and forgiveness. When you pray, believe God to hear and answer your prayer. Even to the point of the seeming impossible. No matter how far-fetched it seems, they want you to come to God, bring your request, go to him, and believe that he is able to do anything. A little Hebrew hyperbole, move a mountain. We would sort of keep that phrase. And say, but some, some of you folks moved mountains to get here this morning, to church this morning, and to overcome obstacles, even the impossible. And Jesus is saying, when you pray, believe God for the impossible. Now, I know on the face of it, it appears that he's just giving every person to pray carte blanche, whatever pops into your head, whatever, you, whatever new car you want, just pray wherever you want to live. I mean, just, just throw it out there. And, and in this context, it's really not taking into account more aspects of prayer about what the will of the Lord actually is in your life. But the point is, if you're asking things of God that are really not according to his will, even more faith is required by you. The lesson is the same. Trust God. Believe God. When you go to him, believe that he hears. Believe that he knows. Believe that he will answer. And secondly, forgive. Oh, no, this is interesting. Keep very short accounts. Unforgiveness and effective prayer don't exist together. They can't. It's talking in some very absolute terms here. You cannot get prayers answered when there's unforgiveness in your heart. When there's forgiveness in your heart, anything goes. He'll move mountains. For you. I find that unusually sobering. What a what a warning Jesus gives us. 
conclusion. Worship team, come on up. He's the ultimate king worthy of our worship whose loving leadership assures us that we can trust him, assures us that we can look to him for help and for safety. And he is this new great high priest, this temple replacement, the one that you and I can always come to who knows us, knows our weaknesses, knows our needs, who is fully capable and able to comfort us as well as cleanse us. This is the normal Christian life. When there's trouble, we run to the Lord. When there's a need, we run to the Lord. When you feel guilty, you run to the Savior. He's the one who can cleanse. When you struggle with feeling ashamed, He's the one that can assure your soul that you are right with Him. And you're right with Him because He gave Himself so that we could be right with Him. That's why we had communion today. We ate and we drank to remember an event where He laid down His life why is that so significant? Because it was that event that purchased your soul for God that gave us right standing with Him. You couldn't buy it. You cannot earn it. You don't deserve it. And yet, He gave it freely, joyfully by this all-powerful, yet meek and humble king, by this great high priest who knows our frame, knows our weaknesses, stands in the gap and makes a way for us to be united to God. Amen. Let's stand.